Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. guys. Hey, how are we this morning? <laughs> nice. Good. Good. Love that you're here. Welcome back. We missed you guys uh, like crazy. We really did. We've been praying for you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of James. So if you got your Bible, flip to James. It's towards the back of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, um, we've got Bibles around the room. We'd love for you to have one even on your way out. Just grab one. They're the, the black ones. I think we even have some purple leather ones too, and they are our gift to you. Um, <clears throat> we preach the Bible here at Christ Chapel College. Uh, my name is Ben. If I haven't gotten the privilege of meeting you yet, I'm one of the pastors here and uh, love getting to preach God's Word. So we're going to be in this book, James, uh, which is a, an incredible book. Um, and so while you're flipping there, I want to set up, kind of tease out a little bit of what we're, uh, what we're doing. <clears throat> um, let me tell a story. When I was 20 right, which is kind of ballpark where, where you guys, a lot of you guys in this room are, uh, which was a long time ago for me, unfortunately. Uh, when I was 20, I w- did ministry. I was pretty involved in young life and, and did a lot of different kinds of ministry stuff uh, and, and kept my schedule pretty busy with a whole bunch of ministry stuff. And one of the things that I really valued was, man, being able to go somewhere and plug in somewhere where I was going to get to hear Bible teaching and somebody was going to preach God's word, and I didn't have any responsibilities. There was something really worshipful for me because a lot of the ministry things that happened were, were things that me as a 20-year-old were kind of learning and fumbling my way through, and I was responsible for something, or I was responsible to teach. And so there was this specific Bible study in Dallas uh, that I would go to that was, you know, kind of far away from where uh, I lived. So I grew up in Garland, and I was living in Garland at the time. <clears throat> any Garland people? No? Okay, cool. Awesome. Great. Um, and uh, so I would, what I would do is I would drive all the way uh, to the other side of Dallas for this Bible study, and I invited a friend of mine to come with me. Well, here's the problem. That friend was a really nice guy, and he started inviting other people uh, to ride with us. And so what was supposed to be really kind of this restful thing for me to be able to just, it was a Tuesday night Bible study that, man, I could just kind of go and and worship and not have to be on and not have to be serving, I could just kind of go and get poured into, um, really became me becoming just a chauffeur around the city of Garland, picking up all these people. I had an Isuzu trooper named Sophia, and it was a big, big SUV, right? And so we would stop at somebody's house, and they would load up, and then we'd stop at somebody else's house, and we'd we'd started making like three or four stops because my buddy just kept saying, oh yeah, we can fit more people, we can fit more people, we can fit more people. And so by like week three, we literally were making like half a dozen stops, picking up people and cramming like eight or nine people in the back of my car. And it honestly like bothered me, right? It was kind of a frustrating thing um, just because it was like, man, this is just supposed to be me and Jesus and I'm just supposed to be able to hop in the car and drive to this thing. So it was kind of bitter. I was pretty bitter about it. Well, then it was, I think, about the third week of this Bible study, and our sixth stop, I remember it specifically, our sixth stop was this, we were picking up a couple of girls who he was friends with, and and so we pull up to this house, um, and it was the last stop before we hop on the highway and head to to West Dallas. And and everyone kind of had to shift around, a bunch of people in the back seat climbed into the way back, and they were all crammed back there, and the door opened, and these two girls got in, and I remember there was this brunette named Danielle who got in the car. Yes, I know, who became my wife. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, 
she is gorgeous, and this is totally worth it. And all of a sudden, what was this really bitter perspective I had, this really sour thing of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, all of a sudden it was like I loved picking up people, especially stop six, because there was this girl, I didn't know how to flirt with her, and I didn't know, and I just bumbled my way through it. Um, I'm going to show you, do we have a picture? I'm going to show you a picture. There we are, guys. That was me when I was about 20 years old. I know. I let myself go. I really did. <laughs> she just gets prettier and prettier and prettier. Um, every five months, she is more and more beautiful. Um, arbitrary five months, but that's the, the case. So there we were. That was like right after. We hadn't even started dating yet, but you could tell. Look at the arm placement, right? Not the lower back yet because we weren't in that stage yet, but the upper back, the placement. I mean, there were sparks. There was chemistry. Please get that down immediately. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so I got to meet the love of my life at what was this bitter thing. Um, thank you, Francis. What was this bitter thing became really this really incredible sweet thing. And my perspective just like that shifted to just total annoyance. This is a problem. This is trouble. This, is, this bothers me to all of a sudden. It was something I was anxious about. I'm like, man, my whole Tuesday nights are driving around the city picking up people to this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me because I got to meet this girl who ended up becoming my wife um, and the rest is history. What's going to happen here in the book of James is the book of James is an incredible book. We'll literally spend 14 weeks just chewing through it verse by verse. Um, but what's going to happen right off the bat is we're going to have a perspective-shifting um, command from, from God's word. And it's going to take a perspective which is natural and intuitive in all of us, and it's going to flip it on its head. And, and God's word does that all the time. But specifically in James um, chapter 1, we're going to see it in a really great way of how something bitter all of a sudden because of the gospel is actually something we should see uh, differently. And not just serendipitously, we're going to have coincidences in our life that are helpful and, and good things are going to happen to us, but something really deep within our souls that allows us to see life differently if we read and apply God's word. Book of James, we're going to be in four verses, just verse one through four in chapter one. That's all we're going to um, cover today. Let me preview. We're going to break them down basically one verse at a time. We're going to unpack what I think I think is a life-changing perspective for you this morning and for me this morning. I think we're going to unpack that and then we're going to apply it to our lives. So here we go. James chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is how he starts the book. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. So the first verse is just James saying, here's who I am. Here's who I'm writing to. It's his greeting, right? But we're going to see a couple of things here that are important to set the context uh, for the whole book. Two key observations that are necessary um, that I want you to not miss. One is James. Who our author is, um, is James, a, and he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we know about the author uh, of the book of James. Here's what we know about this James who refers himself as the servant of God. James was the brother of Jesus. So Joseph and Mary ended up having, having kids, right, after Jesus' um, Jesus's incarnation, Right, Joseph and Mary ended up having at least, we know in Scripture, six kids. The oldest of the kids that Joseph and Mary had was James. And so James was the next brother who grew up with Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus, our Savior, this was his brother, which I love that. And I love that we have a, a book written by literally the guy who lived and grew up 
with Jesus. And, and how beautiful that James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's ever a testimony for the reality of who Jesus is historically, that Jesus really is Lord and Savior and King, he really is God, I would say it's probably from his family, right? It's from the guy who literally grew up around him. I, I don't know if you've got siblings, right? If you've got siblings, your siblings have probably seen your lack of holiness more than just about anybody else in your life, right? If tomorrow you decide, you know what, I'm going to start a cult, and I'm going to start saying that I'm the Lord, right? You might be convincing. You might convince some people, right? They might be like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll give it a try. But tell me, I'll tell you who you're not going to convince, your sister or your brother who grew up arguing over the toothpaste and fighting about clothes or fighting about all the things that siblings do. Your, your siblings who are like, okay, you are so not God. And yet here, the brother of Jesus recognizes, receives. We see um, in the book of Acts, um, we see him, uh, we see Jesus, the risen Lord, go and appear to James. Uh, James becomes a radical disciple. He becomes a, a leader of the early church. He puts his faith fully in Jesus, not just as the guy who grew up in his home, but the savior of the earth. He saw the risen uh, Lord, I mean, if that is ever a testimony for the authenticity of, of who Jesus is and the authority of Jesus, I, I love that. Um, we think this book was written either in the eight, 40s or 50s AD. Uh, we know that James was killed in AD 62, so it had to be written before that. And then the other observation we see in the, the welcome, in the greeting, is he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so what that means, I won't preach a whole sermon on it, but really what he means is he's writing to the Jewish people. Right, who have been scattered, um, the 12 tribes are referenced to Israel, and they've been scattered. They've been scattered is probably reference um, back to the, the origins of Israel, how they've been scattered, and, and then also even now, there's really not a home base for them. And so he's writing to these Jews who are also believers in Jesus. And so then here's the first mind-blowing perspective that's introduced in verse 2. So we've got this context, James, the brother of Jesus, a follower, a leader in the early church, writing to those who are following Jesus, those early believers who say, man, Jesus is Lord, and look right out the gate. Verse two, just verse two. Look at this perspective he's introducing. Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. <clears throat> if, you, if you read and you study God's word and you apply God's word in your life, I really believe it will change your life. If you read this book and study this and apply it to your life, it will change your life. And it will also lead you to a life that is set apart, radically different from the world around you. And verse two of chapter one of James is a great example. If believers say, this is true, this is God's word, apply this to my, then we are going to see the world and have a different perspective. We're gonna live in a way that is so counterintuitive to the culture around us and also so joy-filled and life-giving. Right? This is one of the most counterintuitive things I, I think I could think of, right? Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, right? So this idea of trials of various kinds is the hard stuff in life, right? There's a lot more to unpack than that, but for the sake of time, the, the challenges, the persecution, the hard things, the trials of various kinds, not just one specific kind, 
the hard things in life, and yet when we see them, when we face them, when they come upon us, our response is joy if we're applying God's word. Um, Acts 5 tells this story of disciples. It, it puts this really in, in perspective. And James would have been there in Acts 5. Uh, the disciples, there's a bunch of disciples. Jesus has ascended. Um, and, and there's a bunch of disciples who are beginning the early church. And, and the Sanhedrin and all these Jewish religious leaders are scared out of their mind because they're like, this Jesus guy, we don't believe in Jesus. We got to snuff this out. There's this thing. There's this movement happening. These people are, are just, I mean, in, in love and, and worshiping and praising and saying Jesus Lord. And so they're trying to snuff it out. And they're like, you guys got to stop talking about it. And these disciples are like, we're not going to stop talking about it. And so, and so the, the religious leaders at the time are like, man, should we kill them? And they're like, man, if we kill them then they could just be martyrs. We shouldn't kill them. You know, let's just beat them really bad. And so that's what they do in Acts 5. They flog them. They take these disciples and they, and they strip them naked and they flog them and it's this shameful thing and it's this horribly painful thing. And then in Acts 5, 41, it says, then they left the disciples after they had been stripped and flogged. Then they left the presence of the council, those who had just beat them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, right? Like, that doesn't make sense to be able to go through persecution, to be able to go through embarrassment and shame and have a joy that the world cannot purchase. That doesn't make sense. And yet that is what the gospel, not just purchases for us as a, as a treat that we get to wear as a badge, but that is what the gospel makes available to those who are in Christ. Let me give a couple of cautions here before I go too much further. One, it doesn't say they go looking for trials, right? James, James 1, 2 doesn't say when you go looking for trials. This isn't about I'm going to be a, a masochist. I'm going to be somebody who just tries to cause myself pain and put myself in, in just painful situations, um, and, then, and then I'm going to put on a happy face. That's not um, what this is talking about. It really is a command in Scripture um, for when those realities of life do hit you. And so think about any level of anxiety you have about anything. Any level of anxiety right now or in this season of life that you struggle with. Right? All of our anxieties are, are, are opposite of this joy that we're supposed to have, right? Our anxieties are, are red flags about circumstances or situations or things that we're concerned about. And, and luckily, they're, they're healthy things, right? It's not necessarily evil to, to have them. Those red flags are going to pop up in our life. We're going to realize, oh, no, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do after graduation. I should probably figure that out. Or, oh no, there's a health scare. Or, oh no, something's going on with my family. Or, oh no, something's going on with this relationship. Or, oh no, I've, you know, signed up for a class this semester that I have no business taking, and I'm already thinking about dropping it. All of those things raise flags of, oh no, there is something really hard ahead of me. So think of those as red flags of trials. Well, this verse is exhorting your perspective to take anxiety and flip it for joy. Right? Not just put on a happy face because that's the Christian thing to do. Oh, Christians are supposed to be happy when bad, when bad stuff happens. No, no, that's not what it's saying. That there is an authentic flipping of anxiety in our trials for joy. How? How? How does that happen? How do we do that? How do I get that? How can we have that perspective? God's word doesn't just tell us to adopt this radical perspective. Right? That's not what God's word does. It doesn't say, hey, go put on a happy face. It is showing us a new perspective. It's showing us behind the curtain. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. For you know 
He's describing the how. He's describing how this perspective happens. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's so good. So we see behind the curtain. So what we're called to do, this, this really, honestly, incredibly challenging perspective that all of a sudden I'm supposed to adopt where hard things happen and I count it as joy, how will we start to see because our perspective isn't just that we're supposed to put on a smile, our perspective is that those hard things actually do something. God uses those hard things. They're, that testing of our faith, it produces steadfastness. It makes our roots go deeper. And, and we see this idea of uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I won't get all into the weeds of the Greek here, but let me, let me just kind of paraphrase this idea of our sanctification is this really churchy spiritual word. But what it means is that you are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. And we believe that we have this God who is sanctifying, who is, who is maturing, who is growing us. And not just growing us to be great Americans or great students or great. He's growing us to be great sons and daughters who bring him glory, who live and delight in a relationship with him and bring him glory with, with our obedience and with our our, our intimacy with a heavenly father. And so here we have that sanctification process happening and maturing um, this steadfastness. I, I think of Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, which we studied last year and this idea of, man, as Christians and as disciples, we're pulled back and forth all the time. And if our roots aren't deep, we're just gonna get yanked right out of the ground. Um, I, I think of John 15 and so many agro, agricultural illustrations that Jesus and throughout scripture we see of, of this idea of, man, our fruit, our joy coming from the idea that, man, our roots are deep. I think of John, I mean, I think of Psalm 1, that, that our goal is to be a tree planted by uh, living waters with our roots deep, that we can bear this fruit, this joy in hard seasons and good seasons and winter and storms when trials come. Um, I, I want to illustrate it this way too. Um, if we see hard things biblically, through a new perspective. I think the perspective that James is giving us from a modern standpoint is, is really, it's muscle, right? It's the muscle of faith. That doing hard things, trials in your life, the things that happen or have happened or the challenges that await you in your life or that you're sitting in now, they have an opportunity, yes, to suck the life out of you and, and spiral you into discouragement or, or coping mechanisms or all kinds of other ways that you want to just try to medicate and get away from those hard things. Or biblically, we can see and approach hard things biblically in a different way that actually builds spiritual muscle, that builds the muscles of faith. Right? If you go to a gym, if you go to the rec center and you're working out, right, and you're trying to get ripped or you're trying to get just really swole, right, and you're trying to build muscle, and, and you don't put any weight on the bar because you put weight on the bar, and then it's heavy, and then, it's, then you get sweaty, and then you get sore. And so if you're working out and you don't want to get sore, right, and you don't want to create tension and you don't want to do hard things, well, then you're going to be really frustrated of why am I not ever building muscle? Because muscle is built when those muscles tear, right? When you're working out and it's hard and there's tension and tension and tension and, and as those muscle tears and then as they rebuild, that's how, that's how you build muscle. Biblically, it's what James is showing us here too. Those hard things in our life, 
challenges, trials. Guys, they have the opportunity to build spiritual faith muscles. Faith muscles. Um, I'm tell you a quick story. So that beautiful girl in that picture, um, we got married maybe three years after that picture was taken. Um, our first year of marriage, um, we were, I was traveling and doing ministry, and we were in a car with some uh, friends of ours, and we were driving back from uh, like a summer camp that we'd helped with. And I was in the front seat, and he, my buddy was driving, and both of our wives were in the, in the back seat. And we ended up slamming into um, a parked 18-wheeler in the fast lane on I-20 um, coming <clears throat> westbound. And um, we, it was awful. It was over by Longview, and we spent, I spent two weeks in the hospital. I was fine, but Danielle uh, had a broken uh, scapula, and she lost a kidney. She was in the ICU. Um, I mean, we, they pulled her out of the, the car and rushed her to the hospital. She, code, she had a code blue, which nurses in the room know that that's a big deal. Um, like, a chaplain came to talk to me, which was the most which is the most unsettling thing ever as a, as a husband who'd been married for a year. My wife's in a room. A chaplain comes to comfort me, which I don't want his comfort. I just want to be with my wife. And then I sat in an ICU with her for multiple days. And she lost a kidney and just fought, right? Um, and two weeks, we're in the hospital in Longview. And being in the hospital is bad enough. Being in the hospital in Longview is awful. Sorry if you're from Longview. Um, <clears throat> so it, it, was, it was miserable, right? It was this massive trial within the first year of our marriage. That experience and car wreck shaped our marriage in ways that I could not have even known how to pray for as a husband. Right? Me, in my first year of marriage, having to at least learn for the first time. It wasn't the last time I learned this lesson. God is continually teaching me this lesson because I'm quick to forget. But the fact that I can't be in control the fact that I can't fix my wife, the fact that I am dependent on God, all of these really, really rich muscles of faith that, that God knew would be really sweet for our marriage. And that was a horrible experience and a, a really rough summer of, of um, just uh, rehab for Danielle. And yet we look back at that and we count it joy. We say, praise God for what you did Thank you, God, for trusting us to go through something hard like that because you wanted to build muscle in our marriage and in our family. You wanted from the beginning us to have this challenge and, and to have to put our dependency on you. But that, that's just an example of what it looks like. And there's so many times where I don't see it in most of the time. I don't see it in the moment. I, I don't hold fast to God's word, applying it to my life. I miss it, and I'm not counting it as joy. Hard things are opportunities for growth. The difficult things are opportunities for deeper worship. Two things. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two application points, um, and then we're going to go back into worship. But before I do that, um, I want to I give two things that I think this kind of faith will do for you. Okay? Two things that I think if we walk out of here and say, God, would you give me this perspective? Would I take your word, and would I apply it, and would I start to see through the lens of Scripture? Would I start to trust you? Even when I have those flags come up and I'm just anxious about it, God, would I start to shape my mind and my heart and trust you more than I trust my intuitive instinct? But two things that this kind of faith is going to do for you. Listen, one, it's going to give you hope. It's going to give you hope to stay strong when things are hard. Right? This kind of James 1-2 perspective is going to give you hope when things are hard. Listen, you guys need that. I know some of you are in it right now. 
you're in it right now. And you are wrestling with, man, this is so discouraging and so helpless and so hopeless. This perspective as a muscle to build in your life now, as an 18 or 23-year-old or however you are, uh, old you are in this room, right, that perspective, that muscle is going to give you hope in the hard things now, but also in the hard things that are going to come in life. The other thing it's going to do is it's going to give you confidence to go through the hard things, the hard and necessary things in your life. Because there are times where you're going to have a choice, right? There's times where you're going to have a choice. There's going to be times by next weekend, if you're paying attention, that you're going to have a choice as you follow Jesus. And you're going to say, okay, this is the easy way where I'm not going to feel persecution. I'm going to be able to fit in. I'm going to be able to go the easy route. I'm going to be able to take the shortcut, whatever it is. Or I'm going to go this route, and it feels like this is the right godly thing to do, but this seems hard, and this seems way more challenging. And doing it God's way as opposed to the world's way, gosh, I don't know if, I, if I'm ready for that. This kind of faith is going to give you the courage. It's going to give you the confidence to say, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can follow him. I can put one foot in front of the other, trusting him. So let's apply this. Okay? Two, two application points of, okay, how do we do this, right? If, if this is the command, count it joy when hard things happen. The why, really, Paul, uh, James says, right, it's because of these, these deep roots. It's, it's going to produce a steadfastness. It's going to deepen my roots. It's, it's going to create that, that faith muscle. Then how do we do that? The first is this, and you can't miss this. Most important thing I'll, I'll say today, and we'll say it every week because it's the most important thing that our lives are built on. You have to first know and surrender your life to Jesus. If you really want this perspective, if you really want to have those kind of eyes, to live in that way, to have a marriage that's shaped by that, to have a, a life that's shaped by that kind of faith and submission to God's word, you have to know and surrender your life to Jesus. Faith in Jesus is a prerequisite, right? It can't, this cannot be divorced from faith in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, Paul says this. He says, but we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And he's talking about those who have passed away. That you may not grieve as others who do, uh, you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, passed away. That's the gospel, right? This, this thing of hope, this thing of faith, this perspective that's being talked about, it's not something that's available to everyone who's listening. It's not available to everyone who just says, you know what, this sounds like a cool thing that maybe I want this perspective. This perspective has a prerequisite, and that prerequisite is acknowledgement, surrender, faith, saving faith in the gospel, right? Which we see there in first, there's people who don't have hope because they don't recognize and have surrendered in Christ and in the gospel. The fact that we are broken and sinful and there is not enough self-help books there's not enough great pithy truths that we could take from Scripture and just say, you know what, that's a cool mindset from the Bible. I'm going to take that mindset out of Scripture and I'm just going to apply it to my life without the gospel. The gospel being that you are sinful and you cannot 
earn it. You cannot shape your mind enough. You cannot shape your behavior enough. We cannot make this thing work without our designer helping fix us. We are dead in our sins, our brokenness, our perspectives. We can bandage it up and fake it for a while, but you know if you are not in Christ, you know it is exhausting. What is that solution? And the solution is the fact that our God said, you can't save yourself, fix yourself, heal yourself. I will send my son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we are called to, perfect without sin, and he will die. He will pay not only the penalty, but then he will raise again and he will be king. For those who surrender, who put their faith in him, trust in him, then we get adopted. Say, God, we can't do this on our own. Jesus, we need you. We need you. Not church, not religion, not moral behavior, not great advice from scripture or any other, um, any other source, but we need Jesus, the person of Jesus, to say, my faith is in you, and in doing that, we then get the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. That's a prerequisite for you being able to apply this truth. If you leave here and you just think, cool, I want this life-changing perspective, Right? When I go through hard things, that's great. I'm going to try to apply that. I remembered that, that service that one time. Change my suffering into refinement. That's a, that's a great thing. Change difficult circumstances into joy. You cannot a la carte this thing. Right? You, you can't just come through a buffet line and say, I'll take a little bit of that. The Bible is not a buffet line for self-help. Must be in Christ. Belief in Christ. Surrender. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you need him. Acknowledge that without a relationship with the Father through Christ and Christ alone, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would reorient our hearts to say, Jesus, you are king. You are king, not me. That's for all of us, right? The salvation that happens once and for all, but the, that sanctification process is this constant muscle. God, you are king, not me. I need you, I need you, I need you. And he says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. More of him, less of me. We just sang about it. Okay, so the second application then. If the first thing of how do we do this, how do we have this life-changing perspective is we gotta be in Christ. Then the second application point is, I, I want you to listen to this. When you are anxious, when those flags come, when you are anxious, you have to change your questions to who questions. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you're anxious, which anxiety is going to come in our life, right? If, if we didn't have any anxiety, that'd be weird, right? We, we should have, I mean, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, there will be a little anxious flag that goes up, right? It, it's these warning lights on the dashboard of our heart and our, our mind and our head. But when those pop up, you've got to trade the questions that come along with your anxiety for who questions. Let me explain. When you're anxious, most likely you're asking questions like, what if this happens? The what if question. What if I can't get that job after college? What if this girl breaks up with me? This guy says, no, what if I can't do that? What if, they what if the what ifs are paralyzing and they're ongoing? We all say them at the source of your anxiety right now. There are probably some what if questions that keep spurning and they're legitimate questions, right? But those, those spurn inside of you or maybe a why me? Why is this happening to me? Or maybe a how in the world am I gonna get through this? right? How, how am I going to do this? What, what am I going to do to be able to fix this problem? And what we do, how we apply this is we take 
those natural questions. Well, what if this and what if that? What if this and, and how am I going to do this? And we take them and we trade them for who. Remember that. Who? Who is your God? Who is your God? That's the question. Train your heart. Train your brain. Be in scripture so that you know who your God is. So that when you run into those trials of various kinds, the immediate question is, oh no, what if this doesn't relent? What if I fail? What? And you trade that what if snowball and you trade that and you say, who is my God? Who is my father who's adopted me? He's good and he's powerful and he's in control. He loves me. He will see through this. He will be glorified. Um, Job is a book in the Old Testament about a guy who just, talk about trials. I mean, awful stuff happened in his life. Horrible, horrible circumstances. <coughs> to the point, all of his friends are like, what are you doing? What is going on? All of these what questions and, and all of these, you know, why questions. And so he eventually gets upset, frustrated, goes before God and says, what in the world? What, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Why, wh- why is this happening to me? And God's answer to Job is this incredible monologue uh, of God in Scripture. And, and what the question he's answering is, you need to know who I am, Job. You don't need to know why and what and how you're going to get out. You need to know who I am. I was there at the beginning of time, Job. I have a bigger perspective than you do. It says to you, my sons and my daughters, I have a bigger perspective. It's so hard right now, God. And he says, I know. I am outside of time and I'm in control. Sitting in a hospital in Longview, Texas. What are you doing, God? I have a bigger picture of what I want to build in your marriage, Ben. Do you trust who I am? I change my what's and my what ifs and my anxieties that are real and valid and I take them and I just say, God, who are you? And to do that, I got to stay here, right? I got to know who he is. I don't get to just clock in and say, oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, I better listen to a good podcast or listen to some worship music. No, I got to be here. I got to know who he is on a regular basis. So when those trials come, that muscle's ready, right? I'm ready. I've, I've, been, I've been sitting with my king. I've been sitting with my God. I've been sitting with my father. He's been meeting with me. So I know who he is. And I know he'll get me through. Some of the most worshipful deepest, most worshipful seasons of my life have been in some of the hardest, lowest times where, where Danielle and I looked at each other and said, man, how, how are we going to get through this? And what's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to our family? And what's going to happen to our kids? And those kind of things later in our marriage even. And some of the sweetest times was, was being able to say, man, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know who's got us. It's a father who loves us. That's what is available to us. Through Christ and through Christ alone, a father who doesn't say he's going to make your life sweet, but he's good and you can trust him. So stay close to Jesus. Let me pray as we go back into worship. Father, that is who you are, Lord. You are, you are our father. And you are our father for those who are in Christ in this room. For those who've been adopted as sons and daughters imperfectly, um, God, would this year, this next semester specifically, as we study the book of James, as we gather as brothers and sisters in this room, as we gather in family nights and living rooms or Bible studies around coffee shops and um, uh, dorms, Lord, all of the different ways that we 
meet with you, God, as we sit in Scripture, as we worship, as we, as we continue to learn more of who you are as our Father. God, would you just continue to draw near to us? That in our trials, in the hard things of life, that I know I've got brothers and sisters in this room who are sitting in it right now. They needed to hear this. Not needed to hear that their God's just going to make everything nice and comfortable, but needed to hear that you are still good and you are still in control and we can trust you even in those trials. Because even in those trials, God, you're doing something. And so with our doubts, with our insecurities, with our pain, would we run to you? We love you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.